This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this podcast is sponsored by Empower Your Reality. Empower Reality is a company that I founded that is going to be transforming the world. Um, it's a conscious-based online school, and we also offer one-on-one coaching, group coaching, multiple online classes, online retreats, in-person, eventually it's going to be coming out. Um, we also have a line of books that we do. Right now, they're only being written by me, but eventually we're going to be adding other people onto the publishing site so that we will be publishing 
publishing their books, and we look for specific authors to help us on our journey as we go through this. You can find out more information and follow us on at empoweryourreality.com, where you can get copies of a book, uh, first few chapters for free, and so much more. So go check that out at empoweryourreality.com. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, and welcome. This is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to The Mindful Experiment. I had an awesome time on this interview. Um, I was really excited when it came across an email about potentially being on and so much more that I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be really, really fun. I like to geek out with things, and it's always fun to be able to do that with someone who understands the science, who's very science principle-based, and so much more. Um, I had the opportunity to interview Ted Smith, and I'm going to talk a little bit about him in a minute. But we talked a lot about the environment, the environment, as he likes to call it. And he talks about how the environment is very critical to one's health, well as one being, their mind, and so much more. And we dove into that and a lot more, especially with COVID and everything that's going on. We talked about the astronauts at NASA, because Ted Smith works with NASA. And we talked a lot about the, the environment and how to create this. And what, do we do, what does he do for NASA, um, the astronauts? How, do we, how does he, you know, they look at different perspectives on things. It was really a lot of fun for me. But there's a lot of nuggets that you can take from this and use in your life. And there's a lot of principles that we took on how you can maximize your life and so much more. Um, just to give you a little background of what who Ted is, Ted is the Associate Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology, Deputy Director of the Christina Lee Brown Environment Institute, and Director of the Center of for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. The Center of for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil is focused on research that addresses the promotion of human health in urban air environments. Many projects within the Environment Institute share a focus on the biophilia hypothesis that suggests our fundamental affiliation with our broader ecological mediates disease risk. Several of these projects require sensor and data technologies, not only sensors for monitoring ambient particulate matter, noise pollution, and air toxics, but also for measuring physical activity or personal biometric data. The Institute and Center develops comprehensive and integrated approaches for acquiring environmental and individual level data that can inform and enable new types of community-based observational or clinical studies. Previously, Ted served as Chief, Chief Innovation Officer for the City of Louisville, Kentucky, where he created the largest real-time asthma surveillance research program here in Louisville. Ted received his Bachelor in Science in Biology and Psychology from Elgany College, his Master's in Science and PhD in Experimental Psychology from Miami University, and completed his postdoctorate studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Manville Collaboratory. Ted was the co-investor on the Neurolab Space Shuttle mission. Awesome guy, a lot of great info. He's very well knowledgeable, had a ton of info to share, and I'm just really excited to be able to give this opportunity to share with him of who he is, what's he about, and so much more. So without further ado, here is Ted Smith. Well, Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, I love the work you're doing and all that you're doing. I know we chatted a little bit before coming on, and I'm just excited to have you on and, and all the, the stuff that you have uh, that you're up to. And so uh, I'm not going to waste any time. Now I'm not going to waste any time for the listeners as you're listening here. We're going to get right into things. Um, how did you get involved into these things? Like, was this something you always wanted to do, or is this just something that over time, you know, life kind of bumped you around a little bit, nudged you in certain directions and things like that? Well, I, you know, I think it's going to be a little more in the latter camp, but, but let me tell you, um, 
you know, the, the thing that's been invariant the whole time for me um, personally and professionally is a, is just a, a real curiosity. And, and I know many of your listeners, um, you know, are drawn to your program because of their curiosity. And, you know, I've done a lot of different things in my career, but the, the one thing that's always been true is um, I'm really attracted to these, um, you know, kind of hard and new problems, you know, new in the sense that, you know, we, we didn't really have a good way to understand it before. I actually started my career uh, studying balance disorders in astronauts and trying to figure out, you know, um, how they can adapt to the conditions of weightlessness uh, from a from a balance perspective. It was it had a lot of neuroscience in it, but um, you know, uh, over the years, you know, I've gone into the you know technology industry and into public service, <laughs> and I mean, all along the way, I've always been drawn to you know, these frontier uh, challenges, you know, that if we really work on the frontier, uh, you know, we can really maybe make some step changes, right, rather than just, you know, kind of incrementally working on things that, you know, people have been toiling on forever. So I'm, I'm always a, a frontier person. I love that. How does the brain, you know, handle when, you know, cause you know, gravity has evolved over time and is adapted to gravity and, and, and all the, 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 the sensory input that goes into the brain from that. When an astronaut's in space though, is there, I mean, I know there's a learning curve to this, but um, how's that, is it, it, there's besides the learning curve, does that play a role on the brain in certain ways where they have to, for input and so forth? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's, uh, there's a couple of things that are going on in that situation. So, so first of all, we have a brain that was um, optimized for this environment that we're in. Okay, so, I mean, the good, it's always a good news story first. So the good news is your brain every minute of every day makes really good predictions about your situation and circumstance, right? And um, so we are perfectly optimized for this, this world that we're in, this terrestrial uh, planet. Um, and so we learn about um, what we're not optimized for, you know, when we put, put the brain in situations, you know, that are not what it's, what, what it's expecting, let's just say, or what it's developed an understanding of over time. And, and so weightlessness, um, anything that you might have called um, uh, uh, a psychological illusion, right? Everybody likes talking about illusions. They're, they're sort of fun cocktail party kinds of things, you know, but, but what illusions are, uh, are, are examples of when the brain, uh, you know, comes to a conclusion that, you know, isn't correct, quote unquote. And um, we've learned, psychology has learned a lot over, over the decades and centuries about how the brain works by studying moments when it's not working as you would expect. And illusions are one of those things, diseases, traumatic injury. Uh, these are all situations where we get to learn about how the brain is working by studying it when it's not working, um, you know, sort of in the right way, quote unquote. And so for um, the problems that astronauts have when they're in weightlessness, you know, we've created an environment that is not the terrestrial Earth environment. Gravity is missing. We have a whole bunch of sense organs that are always pumping the brain with good state information about everything, how I'm oriented, how I'm moving, you know, up from down, all those kinds of really super fundamental things. And then all of a sudden, um, the signals are getting um, a little bit garbled and they are not signals that the brain is expecting or would even know how to make sense of and make good predictions about, about our state. And so in weightlessness, you know, we see 
uh, confusion about things like um, tilt and translation. And um, we don't need to get into the, the weeds of it, but essentially, you know, you've got um, organs in your inner ear and in your vestibular system whose whole job is to just know how your head is oriented with respect to gravity. You have little crystals that sit on hair cells and it's a great sensor. It's a really good sensor. Um, but when you, the, they're not weighted down by gravity, when you tilt your head, they don't move the hair cells. And so the only time those, those little cells or those uh, crystals move the hair cells is when you linearly accelerate. And so it turns out the only thing that sensor is now good for in weightlessness is telling you about um, a translation, you know, moving linearly, like in an elevator or going, walk, going across a room, but um, it's not helping you with tilt. And it's, it's looking for that gravity signal, even when you're moving linearly around. And so astronauts report all of these, you know, distortions of, you know, kind of exaggerated movement or temporary inversion phenomena where suddenly, you know, they're quote unquote upside down, even though that doesn't mean anything weightlessness. And, and this is all the brain really aggressively trying to figure out what the new environment is. And I'll just say the other piece that's always important to know about the human brain is that it's a plastic system. And we all know this. So, so uh, one of the great virtues of the, this neural architecture is that it was in many ways designed to always learn and always, uh, you know, refine. And so, you know, weightlessness is just a new learning opportunity in some senses. Like, so it, it, it can, over time, we know we can adapt to weightlessness and we don't have those problems anymore. And, and we have this sort of miraculous ability to have multiple adapted states. So when we come back to Earth, we don't have to relearn Earth. It's, it's a state that we can turn right back on. And so this is the, the exciting part of way the, 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 the brain actually functions. You know, it's a really amazing substrate that, you know, is constantly just trying to help us, you know, kind of survive uh, and function. And it, it does a, a wonderful job, even when we confuse it by going into weightlessness. Is there like a, a, a time frame to the neuroplasticity that exists? Like it, it starts to shift over? Because uh, I'll bring up some studies that I, I've, I've read before, but um, is there a certain time frame that the, they, they go through to where it's like, boom, the brain finally adapts a little bit and then they're able to do that? I mean, it, it varies greatly between individuals, and that's one of, um, you know, maybe that's one of the great attributes of humans as a species is, you know, we're not, um, we're not a monocrop, right? <laughs> vulnerable to like the one thing that could take us all out. So there's a lot of variation in human beings, and there's a lot of variations in neural function, and we don't fully understand that and, you know, what exactly is under those variations. But you know, it's a range. It really, really person to person. It can be um, as short as um, hours for some people who I like to think of as, you know, sort of better at turning off certain sensory inputs. You know, there are people who um, fly by the seat of their pants instead of flying by looking at instruments and out the window and airplanes. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at these broad sort of stereotypical kinds of, um, you know, judgments, you know, they can also help us understand. And then there are people that, you know, maybe are super sensitive, right? Think about the people who love going on roller coasters and think about the people who hate going on roller coasters. And I think you'll find that in underneath all that is something that we're talking about right now. You know, that, there, there are people that the thrill seeking, you know, may be a very sensory rich uh, thing, you know, that it drives uh, adrenaline and it drives all sorts of other 
processes. And then there are people who, you know, really sensitive and jittery and, you know, they're not looking for more sensations. Right. And, you know, I think you can use that just as a, a, as a mental shortcut for, I wonder, you know, how people will react when put in a situation, you know, it'll have something to do with the kind of their own you know, constitution. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely this the the latter guy there who does not like roller coasters. And I, I just attribute to it a sensitive vestibular system because I have no other reason why I just don't I can go on them, I can get through it. It is not fun for me at the end of the day though. <laughs> right. Well, one thing uh, your listeners may be interested in is um the early work that was done on space motion sickness, which is actually one of the things that drew me into the field in the first place. Um, you know, it's like this huge operational problem, like astronauts throwing up or astronauts that aren't, you know, safely operating a vehicle or doing experiments or whatever you wanted the astronauts to do. So, um, you know, there was a whole lot of energy in the, you know, kind of 70s and 80s around space motion sickness. And um, and there still is today, but a whole lot then. And, um, you know, you can really take this all the way back to, you know, sort of a more fundamental issue. So if if being disoriented like this, like not knowing up from down or having the world kind of, you know, bend and morph in front of your eyes because you're no longer processing motion the right way, you could, um, you could imagine that that for the brain is a lot like, um, like a hallucination, right? And so, so, you know, people who've taken LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs, they report these these kinds of things too, right? I mean, all kinds of crazy things. And um, one of the things that we do know about the human vestibular system is when you remove it and you ingest a toxin that could be hallucinogenic, let's say, um, you won't throw up. And it turns out like one primordial role of the human vestibular system and the whole apparatus pathways into the brain, you know, may have in part be to protect us from, you know, eating a bad berry <laughs> that could, you know, could kill us, right? And one way we know it's it's on the way to killing us is it starts distorting signal processing from our senses, right? And so, um, you know, so that that puts that puts this whole thing in a new light, which is, as I mentioned, illusions are fascinating and fun, but you know, also, you know, maybe um, in the case of hallucination, hallucination, hallucination. Um, we may be, uh, you know, kind of telling our body about something that's that's wrong, <laughs> right? And maybe our body's, uh, you know, kind of first line of defense is evacuate, you know, your stomach and, you know, get rid of the poison. And, you know, in the case of weightlessness, there is no poison. <laughs> um, and maybe we've activated an older circuit, if you will. And, uh, and, and really, so then that creates a new kind of problem. Like, how do you solve for space motion sickness? I spend a lot of time working on how do you train the brain to anticipate what they're going to experience in weightlessness on Earth? How do you build simulators that simulate some of the sensory rearrangements? Train astronauts for hours and hours um, to pre-adapt them so that they um, will be less sick and less disoriented. Um, you know, as compared to drug therapies or trying to knock out neurons or, you know, other kinds of strategies for achieving the same result. Interesting. That's a new one for me. I didn't know uh, the vestibular system can, you know, with, with throwing up and stuff like that. So for, 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 for people who've done like, uh, uh, like, well, you're talking about LSD or like a psychedelic too. Um, there's always throwing up that's in company with that. So it's very interesting. Um, when you're looking at brain health and all the stuff that you, you, you do and all the research you're doing and so forth for the astronauts, I mean, 
What is something that um, you've learned or with research or extrapolated that um, can share to like the lay people on how it comes to helping with their own brain and health? Because I know how you brought up illusions and, you know, you shared about like, you know, we, we, uh, it's in the scientific community, we all know that the, the brain is plastic. It, it, it does adapt. It's always learning and adapting and changing. Um, what are some things from your own research and stuff that you've been doing that can help, you know, give a piece of advice to uh, the listeners for that matter? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, uh, I think I mentioned that I've done a, a few different things in my career in lots of different sectors of society. I've landed in academia um, again <laughs> uh, after leaving graduate school in you know the early '90s. Um, and you know the the thing that I'm really drawn to that I think answers this question is the role that the environment plays in um, in our optimal health. And so you know, there's really no shortage of interest in, you know, uh, nutrients or exercise or mindfulness, or I can come up with all kinds of things that I think of as, you know, kind of internal things, right? I mean, you're, you, some of us are fascinated by the gut microbiome, right? And, and how does that have to do with my overall wellness? And, you know, that's exciting and all, but, but let me, I guess I'm here to tell you, the vast majority of the things that will make a difference in your um, in your physical health and in your mental well-being are outside of your body, and um, we really just we don't we, you know we're kind of a consumer-driven society, so there, there's really there's not as many things to buy, I guess, that that value the things outside of us. But I mean, it is um, if you if you really want to see what can have a profound effect on, on your well-being? put your brain in a, um, a calmer state, reducing, you know, rumination and all kinds of things that we know are, are really um, encumbering us. You know, you don't have to look any further than like, what are the environments that we are in? And, um, you know, if you're in a concrete jungle, <laughs> you know, filled with air pollution and noise, I promise you there's no amount of meditation that's going to solve for that. Like you are, you are being uh, subjected to uh, forces that your body really is not adapted in any way to, to um, deal with. And in extreme situations, I mean, just can't, there's no adapt, there's no plasticity that will solve for, you know, high levels of air pollution or high levels of light pollution, or, you know, these are things that are primordial, they're fundamental, and um, people just don't often think about them very much. And so I would just say, Step one is, you know, let's let's think about the the terrarium that you're putting your brain in, and let's think about what's what's in that terrarium, and you know, are those things that are going to support good health, and um, and things that support good health support good mental states. I agree with you there because, like, one of the things we in one of my certifications I've done as being a chiropractor is uh, we looked at like what is the main cause of all disease illness. The main thing that there's two things that what we they've seen across the board through the research, and it's usually a deficiency and or toxicity, right? And, Absolutely. And if you're having massive toxicities, <clears throat> pollution, things like that, how you know it, it's going to affect the body eventually. That's right. That's right. I mean, so, so, but I think that the actionable thing, you know, for, for your listeners is, is to really start being very intentional about looking at, you know, where you're spending your time. 
and you know by the way that includes you know sort of who you spend your time with <laughs> you know all kinds of things and um you know through this uh pandemic we've had a lot of people spending a lot more time outside um a lot more time in nature and um you know i hope and anticipate we'll see some um some better health outcomes for some people who you know used to sort of incarcerate themselves in cubicles and whatever else they were doing with a lot of their time um, you know, now are spending time walking, you know, in natural settings. And, and, you know, I can assure you most of our physiology, you know, was waiting for that. <laughs> and every day that we didn't give it that, you know, um, you know we, we produced a certain amount of uh, potential risk for us, you know, for some kind of vulnerability, some, you know, some kind of a, a, a less than optimal state. So, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's the big advice is, is start being much more intentional about the circumstances that you're in. I love how you bring it up too, because when I hear like the toxicity and talking about pollution and stuff like that and how you're surrounding yourself and you, you brought a little bit up there too about who you spend your time with. And I think what's also critical too is also not just what you're spending your time with, but what about even like the the resources or things you're getting information from or where you're, you know, we're in an information era. And so it's all about like where you spend your time with information, how, what kind of things are you listening to? What are you giving your brain to all those types of things? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's, this is a great, and, and it's something in, in the notion of mindfulness, you know, is this um, being really good about your attention. And I, I think, this is just something that I think we can now sort of take outside of our headspace, if you will. And, and, you know, really, you know, put, put, you know, really focus on, you know, what, what these different environments do to you. I mean, really the roller coaster discussion isn't that far from what we're talking about right now. I mean, so, um, you know, putting yourself in situations that really help you thrive you know, is, is, is in some cases up to you. Now, not always. I mean, some people are in circumstances that aren't, are not by their own choosing. Um, and they have a harder situation. There's no doubt about it, but to the extent that you have any control over, you know, kind of how and where you spend your time, it is part of this whole optimal health and well-being uh, conversation. I thought you were going to say there was hope for me to be on a roller coaster for a second. <laughs> no, well, you can always go through the desensitization therapy. I've always, I've always loved the people that do that. You know, like I am going to be a different person. <laughs> or, or, or you could just love who you are, right? <laughs> just accept as it is. You know, I always talk about just accept what, you know, acceptance is a big thing. <laughs> it's a big thing. It's a big thing. No, I, I think that's uh, really critical. And, I th- you know, one of the things that you're bringing up is actually in the dog psychology world, it's the same thing. I had a dog, uh, we got, what now, seven years ago almost. And it's a pit bull. And some people look at pit bulls in a bad way. And I was like, with my wife and I'm like, we're going to understand the psychology of dogs. And so that we can be not, not to have a good image dog, which we wanted. But the thing was, is to have a better relationship with our dog and be able to relate with it and make it happier. And I, I've learned over time that dogs are literally kids um, in many <laughs> ways from a psychological standpoint and reward systems and all that works. But what I found out was, and one of the trainers taught me, which I was thought was so blown away was, is when you're training a dog, you have to put it in an environment that is successful. You got to set it up for success. So it can build its confidence and then it can know like, okay, this is what you want me to do. Great. Got it. I get the, I see you smile. You're happy when I do this thumbs up, let's do it. Right. And, and it was fascinating because um, I had a dog before that and um, you know, he learned some tricks and so forth and that was great. But this dog, 
be in setting up, and then it just links to everything we're talking about, putting him in that environment for success. My wife can train him on something that took people usually a week to get their dog to do, and he mastered it in an hour. Now, he may be a little wow. smart. He may pick up on things a little faster too, but like, for example, he, does, he doesn't like jumping up into things like going into the car to his kennel. And I'm like, honey, there's no way you're going to get him in that kennel. I'm like, there's just no way. I can't see you getting him in that kennel. It's going to take a while. We got a kind of special kennel for him. All of a sudden, she's like, watch, you got to give him success. So she does all these things. All of a sudden, I come back about four, an hour later, I see him in it. And I'm like, how? She goes, watch. She takes him out. She goes, kennel. He jumps right in. I'm like, how are you doing this? <laughs> I'm like, this is fascinating. But it was, again, the concept that you're bringing up is about setting up your environment for that. So when it comes to like health, I know you have environmental medicine background stuff that you're doing that, all those things too. How does an individual, you know, you're talking about getting outside the fresh air. I know you got a project that you're doing also, but what are the things that people can do to set themselves up for success or better health and and things along that nature um, and and whatnot? Well, I mean, I will tell you, there's, there's still a lot of room for common sense um, as, as attracted as we are to complicated things. Um, and, you know, so, <laughs> you know, in the past two years, you know, I've, I've read books on super fundamental things, right? Like what is sleep? How much sleep should I get? Right. So you would think by, you know, 2020, <laughs> we might've figured out how, how much, you know, how sleep works or why we need sleep and how to value it. Right. But, but, no, it's a best-selling book, right? Walker's book on sleep. Um, you know, there's a book on how to breathe, right? And so again, 2020 years, you know, and recorded the time, whatever. I mean, like, you know, why do I need to read a book on how to breathe? And it's actually because so many people breathe so poorly right? that it is actually a huge health risk, right? As is um, sleep deprivation and, you know, uh, dysfunctional sleep or circadian sleep arrangements. So, you know, I mean, my advice is, really fundamental advice. You know, it's, it's not nothing fancy. It's um, take the time to uh, think about how you're sleeping, really think about eating and, you know, how that, how that, you know, kind of works for you, how that works with your sleeping. Think about, you know, how much time you're spending in artificial light <laughs> compared to natural, you know, light cycles. Um, breathe, you know, drink when you're thirsty. Right? I mean, like, it, you know, it's, um, it is just amazing to me how much opportunity there is in very basic things. And it, it's it really, it, maybe it took the pandemic to remind us all that washing your hands is probably one of the most successful public health interventions ever. And it's practically free. Right. And, and yet we'll get fixated on all kinds of things when, you know, some very, very basic things that we should, I guess maybe because they're so basic or they're free, they're, we're not drawn to them. But I assure you, you know, like listeners on day one, focus on how you're sleeping, keep track of it at some level, and how you feel when you sleep in different ways. Because I think the good news about, you know, folks who are already thinking about the brain and the mind, you know, you're already, you know, kind of tuned to, you know, when you're feeling well, when you're not feeling well, when you're when you're, you're kind of working at peak performance versus not. I mean, these are things that you can do your own experiments on. So I would start with sleep. I would, you know, I'd move to exercise, time outdoors, and um, really do do your own optimization work um, because these are tools that are accessible and they're free. And your body actually will thank you, you know, when you do it right. 
Why do you think we as a human society, because I, I see this so much in the health world and you're sharing a lot of these wonderful, simple concepts that are monumentally profound, but why have we, just to pick your brain a little, why have we complicated this so much? Like we, <laughs> like humans well, get involved and we just complicate yeah, well, things to certain degrees. I love it because, um, um, you know, I, I don't know where, where, where your program has been as it relates to things like um, climate change and just generally how we treat the planet. But um, I, I sort of think there are just two categories of humans. Okay. This is very, very simple. Um, you know, there, there are uh, those that are trying to leave the planet and there are those that are trying to stay on this planet. Okay, and just just bear with me for a minute. So the people that are trying to stay on this planet um, fully recognize and appreciate and value the the role of the rest of the ecology that we live in, right? And um, and and they're very concerned and anxious about everything we do to destroy the ecology that we may or may not fully understand that we depend on. Okay, this is also an important concept. Do you believe that your functioning depends on a broader ecology, right? I like to talk about like the terrarium that the kids in the elementary school have. Like, what did you put in the terrarium, right? If it's a mouse with uh, three bags of Skittles versus a mouse with, you know, some carrots and whatever, like you're going to see different things based on what you put in the terrarium. So, So the people that are trying to stay, they really want the terrarium to have integrity um, that are that we're expecting. Then there are the people that are trying to leave, and there's some very famous ones. Uh, and often they, you know, these are some of them are tech entrepreneurs and others, and they're very excited about um, colonizing Mars, for example, or you know how we can set up, you know, condominiums on the moon or whatever, whatever, whatever the great idea is. But those are ideas that are about leaving. Like you know, we we you know, there also there's people in the sort of the, you know, sort of the uh, what is it? The, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on it. There, there are folks who uh, are, are convinced that we can take our mind and remove it from our bodies, right? Our, the conscious mind, we, we may someday be able to upload it right into the whatever, right? Because we're going to get to that state. And, and these are the same people in my mind. They're, they're in group B, which is we're trying to leave. We're no longer encumbered by our physiology. Um, you know, we've transcended our physiology, you know, the mind is preeminent and we, we don't need any of it. And, um, you know, that, so that's it. And so I, you know, when you say, why do we complicate things? We complicate things because in some ways, I think fundamentally there are, there are those that are just trying to disown their, their dirty physiology, right? They're, their, you know, kind of animalness or however you want to talk about it, that like the weakness, the vulnerability that we have, that we do depend on this greater ecology. I mean, I'm obviously in the camp that says, I think the moon would not be a great place to live and thrive. I think Mars would not be a great place to live and thrive. I'm not saying we can't do it, but I'm saying given a choice, you know, we were, you know, we're, we're doing our best here you know, with everything that's around us. And so I think that's in the complication factor that we're confusing sort of two different kinds of human species, you know, those that are trying to stay and those that are trying to leave. That's very interesting. And I know I fall into the first part, like I'm all just keep nature, you know, enjoy nature, get connected with nature. Cause I think that's the other thing about humans too, is we look at 
how we evolved and where we are today in 2020. And, and we're very disconnected with nature. Um, right. You know, right. in so many, in so many ways, some people say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, okay. Walking into the forest or, you know, being there, connecting, hug a tree. I mean, there's, there's so much research that just shows how, or just connecting and respecting nature and understanding it, but then understanding the rhythms of nature and how to connect with it yep. and understand like what well, you were saying earlier, sunlight, get out there, Right. Go right. take a walk and just breathe fresh air. Research has shown the brain health of what that just does is unreal compared to running on a treadmill in a gym. Right, right, um, right, right. And these are choices that we can make in many cases, right? And so, and again, free, you know, for the most part, uh, sometimes cheaper, right, to spend time in nature, right, than to spend time in the gym. Uh, so, you know, like this, this is within our control, but it's really, I think it is a question of our value system. Like what do we value and what, you know, what do we think is important for ourselves, for our families, for, and you know, this is, uh, this is where we're, I think, stuck at some level, you know, we're, we're drawn to things that are complicated. We're drawn to things that we can buy. We're drawn to, you know, but, but at the end of the day, you know, what is happiness? And we know that there's all sorts of evidence that happiness has nothing to do, you know, with how much stuff you have and how much money you have. And, you know, that, that we've been in some ways we're easily distracted, you know, by, by these other things. And, you know, this is about grounding and about, I think it is about the fundamentals. And I think that it can be very gratifying to be good at the fundamentals. So when it comes to, you know, again, the, the, the environment we're talking about, you know, getting out, fresh air, moving, sleep, right? Is there like an environment that you have studied about and know about that can like help an individual sleep better or sleep deeper in certain ways? Uh, well, I mean, there's a bunch of uh, uh, research that's come out in the last 10 years um, that really does look at uh, sleep patterns, um, both you know, kind of your physiology, right? Are you an early riser? Are you a night owl, right? And, and there are genetic bases to these different um, types of people, right? Um, you know, so, so getting to a place where you understand, um, you know, kind of the kind of person you are, you know, then opens the door to, um, okay, so what is it about the quality of, of my sleep, right? So, do I, um, do I go to bed tired, right? Like, you know, have I exercised enough today <laughs> to, to sort of, you know, earn the sleep that I know I need? Um, and, and then I think you have this issue of like, what is the environment that you're sleeping in? And there's a whole lot of really interesting um, literature on synchronizing the temperature, you know, like your bedroom should be, you'll sleep better if it's colder Right. Right. And you'll wake up better if it's warming when you're waking. Now, this is a, almost a ludicrous thing to say to somebody who has a thermostat in their house that, you know, um, somehow my brain and all of my physiology was, was expecting it to get colder at night and warmer in the morning when the sun comes up. But there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests you'll have better sleep if that's the environment you're sleeping in. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a new homework assignment for, you know, there are people that care about this a lot more than, than I do. They spend their careers focused on it. Um, but, you know, so that's just a really good example of taking the environment very seriously when it comes to sleep. Yeah, I, I had a chance to interview uh, Tara Youngblood, who's the inventor of the chili pad or the uh -huh. pad, yeah, there you pad go. too. And uh, yeah, we, we went down 
tons of stuff on that, but it was fascinating because her research was talking about how, cause I was bringing up a concept of like, so you're telling me we can choose if it's too cold, if it gets cold, cold. And let's say I, I was physically active that day and I was very um, worked out and I had a physical laboring day. Um, I can just set my, cause I have a Uller pad. I can set it and I'll just t- bring it down to a certain temperature, a little colder so that I get more deep sleep where if I have a more mental computing day, I can just, I'll, I'll still, I need to get my deep sleep, but then I can like in midway schedule it. So I have a little bit more of a warmer cycle, which allows my REM. And she's like, we're doing studies right now on that to show that. Um, and I'm just like, that's just so fascinating again, just, and I'm only bringing this, bringing this up because again, you were bringing up environment and it's just tying together how that all plays a role. No, that, I mean, that, that's, it's just a perfect example of, you know, this is something that, you know, people just haven't thought about in a long time <laughs> or, or well, ever. Right. Well, you think about it too. Like again, I, me for me, and some people say, "Well, you make things too simple." And I'm just like, I'm a common sense guy. I, I look at things in a certain way. And how did we do it back in the day? We survived as a species for so long. Um, you look at right. night. Night always gets colder, and in the day, it's not like it gets warm like midday, but it does get warmer than it was uh, a yep. little bit. And uh, usually, that to me, I'm like that. And then the light cycle, how that plays a role in the eyes and serotonin production, activating things, and all those things. I'm like. It's just, you know, something that I think we have with artificial lighting um, have been like, well, it's nighttime, but I can put on the lights where I, I, I've read some things. It's been a while since I've done this research, but um, looking at like, how do we do it back then? Uh, you know, we did have fire, but did people stay up? People usually change their sleep cycles a little bit based on uh, nighttime and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and, and even the nature of light. And I know that, you know, that the pendulum swings back and forth on blue light. So I'm not going to go in there, but I will just say you know, when it was the light of fire, it had a lot more in common with a sunset, right, than, um, you know, white, blue, you know, stadium lights, which have a lot more to do with, like, daylight, you know, bright sunlight at noon. And so, um, you know, I mean, even the nature of illumination has changed. You know, so illumination has changed over the decades. And it, you know, it's, it's becoming perhaps even diverging even more from what is a, a more natural kind of a light that you might have expected for hundreds of thousands of years. Love it. Now, question, because you know, were talking about environment, you know, we're talking about health, brain health, overall health, and things like that. We had COVID come around, right? And certain countries did well, certain countries didn't do so well. Um, yep. Some can say Americans are doing, you know, there, there's the whole thing about the death rate and looking at, you know, what is really COVID, what isn't, CDC came out with things. I'll leave that to the side, but Talking, though, about the environment, could that help with things like a virus, like, you know, any virus, not just, you know, COVID, but just any virus? Yeah, I mean, of course, is the answer. I mean, um, you know, the, you know, some of the biggest public health benefits that we've had as a species have come from um, managing our environment better, right? So so the the two biggies, and there are many, but the two biggies are uh, cleaning up drinking water and um, removing waste, human waste. (laughs) And, um, you know, it is the difference between having rampant infectious disease and not, and and that's it. And those are environmental changes that we've made. So we have changed the nature of our our drinking water, and we've changed what we do with our waste. And um, when you look at infectious disease, you know, what we've learned and, and our, our research institute has really pivoted to, to be part of the, you know, kind of part of the great fight here. You know, um, there are, are definitely disparities in the burden of infection 
And when we look at, you know, we look at the racial disparities, but you can also look at the socioeconomic disparities and, you know, somewhere along the way, you're going to start tripping into environmental characteristics, right? You know, people who uh, don't have choices about isolating themselves, right, from their families. I mean, living in congregate living settings that are, you know, very, very close proximity. I mean, we know that that's important. It's critically important in slowing down transmission to, you know, separate people, uh, especially people who are suspected of being exposed to the infection. Um, you know, but for some people, they just don't have that choice, right? And it's, it's hopelessly out of touch and you know, tone deaf to say, well, let's all go to our other house, <laughs> you know, in case one of our family members is uh, infected. And, you know, so what do you, those are environmental factors and they are related to this pandemic. And, um, you know, really coming up with a good insight about how can we live differently as a community to protect ourselves, you know, now that we handle drinking water and wastewater, you know, what do we do next? And I think, you know, we really do need to look at, you know, how, how we're, how we're living and, you know, whether we're living in ways that could promote infectious disease or um, prevent it. How much do you think the, you know, cause in America, we're such a, a sanitizing cleaning society where, germ, where, where germs get rid of, you know, we got to keep things sterile. That's just kind of the concept. And that's what our, our, in America, our mindset is. And we use a ton of chemicals to do that, which adds into the toxicity level of things. Um, but what if we, you know, again, I always think back in nature, like, okay, they didn't have much. Yes. The cleaning water, get rid of, you know, sanitation processes is that, that has transformed in the early 1900s in America to now a lot of things, uh, from our, the decrease of certain diseases has been credited to our sanitations and how we've changed things. Um, but it, it, how much does, you know, with, with, with the microbiome or, you know, when I say microbiome, some people just think of the gut. I think of the whole body, but I also think of not just my body, but I also think of my environment and what I'm surrounding myself with. Yep. And I only bring this up because there's been, you know, I, 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 I educate a lot on this in my chiropractic office and so forth about the microbiome. Um, and it's one of the things where I'm like, you know, we look at, I was talking to a contractor one day and we we're talking about mold. And I was like, he was telling me how mold's increasing in certain areas and we're seeing more, he sees more of it. And I said, what competes against mold? What's stopping mold? Why is the problem here now? And, 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 and as I kept asking that question, I started seeking and I wanted to know the answer. And I, then finally somebody gave me an answer and said, we're, cle we're cleaning so much that we're getting rid of the good stuff and it's giving less competition now for mold to grow. And I was like, that that sits my that sits my belief. Now I won't say belief system, just the science I'm reading, um, and everything that I understand about the body and all that. And so, is there ways to where if we went more towards you know, not so germophobic, but a certain healthy balance, could that alter and change things? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I personally believe that that's absolutely right. Um, you know, there there's a. I'm so glad you, you talk about the microbiome more broadly. We, we do a lot of work in exposure, the, the, so the skin microbiome, so sort of what's floating above your, your skin right now, what you inhale, all those kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think there is mounting evidence that, um, you know, what, what you might have called a dirty environment, right, if, you know, before, you know, is um, potentially a healthy environment 
really actually for your immune system, right? Because, you know, we've learned this about kids that grew up on farms versus kids that grew up in cities and looking at asthma and, you know, all these autoimmune diseases, you know, many of them you could imagine are problems of the immune system, potentially not um, having enough training data, if you will, um, turning on itself, right? Turning on our own bodies, which is the essence of autoimmune diseases. So, so immune function, which the, the coronavirus, novel coronavirus has taught us a lot about um, and to value it <laughs> is, um, you know, is, is a learning system just like the brain is. And um, you're absolutely right that as we, as we sanitize environments, um, we remove things that we might not have understood were important or we don't know how important they are because we were so busy getting rid of them. <laughs> and this is what, this is what my point about like, um, you know, sending astronauts into space, you know, and sterilized capsules, you know, maybe that's not the best idea. You know, maybe their immune function will depend on having other organisms, microorganisms and macroorganisms um, with them. Right. And so you're absolutely right that, um, you know, this is a situation where removing things from our ecology without understanding what our dependence may be on them, either directly or indirectly, your point about mold, you know, competition between species. So, I mean, the general rule of thumb I like to use is generally speaking, you know, more, the more biodiverse an environment is, it's likely to be more beneficial to you, right? And so really it's not about picking one thing over another thing. It's about the whole picture. And, you know, are we really working hard to um, uh, preserve and maintain a state of exposure that includes a lot of diversity? Because in that diversity are healthy layers and layers of competition between organisms and things. And, you know, we just, it's, I think it would just be arrogance to imagine that we understand which of these things we need, which of these microorganisms we need, which of these, you know, chemicals that they make we need or don't need. You know, we're, we're, we're not that far along is, is my, my personal belief. Yeah, and I just, but I, I, it's, it's so fascinating to, to tap into the world that's of the, the microbiome because it's just, you know, I love you how you brought up the study with the kids in the farm versus the, the ones in the cities and that. And I always use that one because um, I always educate that, like, I'm like, you have to understand, again, simplicity. What did we do back in the day? And then how does the, how does the immune system learn? And viruses and bacteria teach us a ton. It teaches the immune system a ton of things. And we're expecting it. Like, I mean, the people, the things that people don't understand, there's, there's a great uh, researcher uh, named Rook uh, in the UK, you know, who, who put this thesis forward that um, it's called the old friends hypothesis, that we have co-evolved with lots of other things, right? And um, the vast majority of those things are microorganisms. And um, we've, so we've co-evolved with them. And so our bodies are expecting their old friends. And so when we're born, we're born expecting certain kinds of exposures. And, you know, that's a, you know, obviously it's a sort of a teleological argument. It's, it's a difficult one to prove or disprove, but um, it's powerful in that it suggests a way, a way to make sense of so much of the runaway chronic disease in the developed world. I mean, you know, the, the chronic disease burden is outrageous. I mean, it is the, single biggest limiter of human life right now. And um, where did it come from is, is a good question. You know, once we stop dying of infectious diseases immediately, you know, now we die of, you know, long-term inflammatory, you know, disorders. And where did they come from? And, you know, how is it that some people don't, don't suffer from them? And, you know, these, 
I, I, I believe we will see roads leading back to things like this idea of the diversity of the biome. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you 100%. I always look at the diversity of the biome like a diversity of a portfolio when it comes to financials, <laughs> you know, investing. The better diverse, well, the better you are. I think that's a really good analogy too, because you don't also then imagine you completely understand which stocks are going to win and lose. And that, that that's at some level kind of a faith-based exercise, right? Where you say, I know it's going to work out if I have a diversified portfolio. So the same thing with biodiversity, for example, I don't know which birds or bugs or <laughs> like, I don't know which ones are the ones that matter, but I know if I have all of them, uh, then I'll probably be in better shape than if I have only some of them. And I love how you bring up the old friend hypothesis. One of my uh, mentors in chiropractic, he, he said, I think we're getting to a point where we're understanding that the nervous system is vastly different than we understood before. And I think he was, I think he was joking, but he wasn't joking in a sense, because he said, when we look at how something comes into the body, if you look how the, vir- the, the immune system goes at it, it actually looks like it's opening its arms and embracing it. <laughs> and I started laughing. I'm like, are you being serious? He goes, there's a point to that. And I was just like, he goes, but we don't have enough data to prove any of this. And I was just, but it was interesting when you brought up the old friend hypothesis, I was like, you know, yeah, that's right. I was like, maybe that is true. Who knows? But you know, it's, I think one of the key things and sometimes in science and we hear this so much right now about like how the science is settled. And I'm always like, that doesn't, that, those are two oxymorons. That's an oxymoron to say, because science is always evolving, right? right? It's always, we're learning, we're evolving, we learn new things, we apply it, we, re, you know, it gets reproduced, re, you know, we can reproduce it and so much matter. And then it's like, okay, this is something, something we learned new um, in that matter. So I think this is, you know, this is vast and I can, we can go hours on microbiome, but um, I know we're getting close to the end here and I want to just really quickly, um, Really quick, just talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, your Green Heart Project, what you're doing with that, and what's that all entail? Sure. So the Green Heart Project is, um, is a five-year longitudinal interventional clinical trial, which is um, primarily designed to answer the question, does exposure to greenness um, reduce uh, cardiovascular disease risk? And, and I, I hate to use such generic language, but it turns out, you know, there's 150 published peer-reviewed studies that, that show at the country level, at the city level, at the census tract level, that people who, are, who live near green spaces, greenery, trees, green spaces, whatever, they um, have better all-cause mortality, better health outcomes. They have lower cardiovascular disease uh, mortality. Um, statistics. And, and so we know this and it's all correlational, right? So, and, and you could say, well, gosh, you know, wealthy people live near more green stuff than, than poor people, you know? Like, and, and so then the people start rolling their eyes like, well, is it really the greenness or, and so this is the first study of its kind at this scale where, you know, we are in um, four neighborhoods that are home to 22,000 people and have divided that area up and matched them demographically and otherwise. And we have an intervention, you know, so we have a baseline where we're looking at their cardiovascular health, 765 people, cohort of 765 enrolled in the trial. We plant roughly 10,000 trees, um, which increases greenness, you know, by, uh, you know, 
up to 10% in some areas, which is actually a lot of greenness. Um, and then we go look at uh, how that group does in a post-test for cardiovascular disease markers and inflammatory markers, um, uh, uh, arterial stiffness, other markers of cardiovascular fitness. And um, we look at that in the control group and we look at that in the intervention group. So this is the first you know, um, trial to attempt to establish cause, right? So does, does greenness cause this health outcome or is it just correlated with this health outcome and maybe something else is the cause so anyway so that's that's the project we call green heart uh, louisville project you can google it um it's um it's ambitious it's um i think it's important um it's a it's a drug trial that the drug is trees and bushes it's registered at nihclinicaltrials.gov and it's the only drug trial that says trees and bushes <laughs> so um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that we're at a place now where we have the ability to, to incorporate this kind of clinical science, uh, you know, into the discussion, not just about drugs, procedures and devices, but really looking with the same high rigor gold standard approach that we use for drugs and devices. But now we're looking at nature uh, through that very same high test prism. I love it. I can't wait to hear all about that and how it goes. I think it's going to be a fascinating one. Well, Doc, I appreciate having you on. This was a lot of fun. I'll definitely have you back. You're, you're, you got a wealth of knowledge and, and all that you're doing. And I'd love to chat more and a lot more other things, but um, I appreciate you and appreciate the work you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.